0: Amen. 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 Well, you all ready to continue through 1 Corinthians? Paul has been admonishing the church in Corinth. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul has been admonishing the church in Corinth toward unity. uh, And Paul claims that we accomplish unity in the local church and consequently in our nations and in the world by growing more mature Not just into adulthood physically, but growing more mature in the faith by knowing God more. This knowledge, however, Paul admits, that's the goal. It's good. Learn stuff. But knowledge by itself puffs up, makes makes arrogant. Uh, We do not want knowledge without love. Love edifies. Love is interested in building others up. And we've seen a theme in the last few chapters now where Paul has been addressing things that the church at Corinth has been really legalistic about. So there were some in the church at Corinth who followed Paul, who followed Apollo, some who followed Peter, Cephas, and then some who... No, we don't follow any of those guys' teaching. Jesus, we followed Jesus, and Paul got onto him. You're creating factions, you're creating divisions in the church based on different lines of theology, different lines of doctrine, but most likely, probably different different ways of doing things, and you're you're building division in the church, and the way to overcome this division is by actually knowing God, knowing God's word, knowing what God wants, but not just knowing it, putting it into practice, so there are divisions that exist in the church at Corinth. Some of these divisions had to do with Christian liberty, as we have seen, even Paul was being judged for what he put into his mouth rather than what came out of his mouth, and so he corrected the way the Corinthians were judging one another and him, you who want to judge me. Pay attention to what I'm saying. Listen to the words coming out of my mouth rather than judging me for what is going into my mouth. And judge one another the same way. They got the head coverings for women, which is a controversy in in the church at Corinth. And apparently there were some young women, apparently I say because we don't know for sure, right? Some young women who are bucking tradition and maybe not putting a cloth covering over their heads. And they were praying and prophesying in the church gathering. And and this was a big deal. And Paul said, hey, first of all, men and women should be prophesying, praying and prophesying, prophesying there meaning expositing in some way the word of God. But there are limitations to that, right? Women should be taking the posture that God gave women to take during the church gathering. Men should be taking the posture that God gave men to take during the worship. Gathering and pay attention The reason is because that glorifies God not humankind. And, and to those who want to be contentious, stop. There is no other tradition in the church at all. No one else has this controversy because the other churches are way more interested in glorifying God than you, O Corinthians. So Paul has been talking about a lot, a lot of controversy in the church at Corinth, a lot of division in the church at Corinth. and And it always comes down to when Paul is talking, stop being so moralistic which as we talked about on blacktop pulpit is different from having morals right we should have a strong sense of morality we should have a sense of what is right and wrong but to be moralistic is to live life in such a way where where our eyes are always affixed on a boundary a boundary we call law and to always be focused on not stepping over that line which is what the pharisees did and what Christ got onto the pharisees for in fact Paul taught leading up to this moment, all things are lawful for me. That boundary, Christ liberates us from that. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. Not all things are profitable. And this is a distinction we have seen between the way the world lives, always affixed on moralistic boundaries, worldly religion, having a sense of piety, right, but that not actually... Mattering when it comes to curbing self-indulgence. And then we have the Christian sense of morality, which is do what profits others. Do what means something. And so our attention is taken off this legalistic, moralistic boundary that worldly religion places around us, and it's affixed to Christ and on other people so that our religion isn't inward, where we're building up our own goodness and building up our own piety, but it is focused outwardly, first to exalt Christ, to glorify God in our actions, and then to benefit others, to do what is good for others. And that's the difference between just having knowledge that puffs up and loving others, which edifies others. And that's just a summary of Paul's argument leading up to this moment. We're going to begin 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. I know we read verse 17 and exposited it last week, but it is a great start to this current section as well. We'll read from verse 17 all the way to verse 34 this morning. So you were right, a couple of hours. We should have it done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all right. Verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in doing so he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry... Let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. The first thing I want to notice in this passage of Scripture is Paul's reference, again, not not some passing reference, not just an allusion, but an explicit reference to the Lord's Supper. Uh, something we also call communion, something that is also called the Eucharist, right? And Paul uses this eucharistic language throughout First Corinthians when he's talking about eating and drinking, and when he's talking about the involvement of the church. Uh, it's it's like Paul, when he sees the church gathering, he sees three primary things happening: that's prayer and prophecy. Prophecy in First Corinthians. We look back to First Corinthians chapter four, verse six. Prophecy meaning not exceeding the words of Scripture. So so prophecy quite literally meaning speaking the word of God that has been written down for us to speak to one another, right? So prayer and prophecy, essential elements in the church gathering. And then also the Lord's Supper, which he seems to see as an essential element to the gathering. And he uses this Eucharistic language to talk about the community of faith, not just communing together, but actually communing with Christ, uh, here actually accomplishing a purpose, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. This is the gospel. When we gather together, prayer is gospel-centered. When we gather together, prophecy is gospel-centered. And I think, I think the preaching, I think the teaching, wherever teaching is going on, and I think the music, I think that's all prophecy, right? And it should be biblical, it should be gospel-centered, it should be doctrinally sound, it should be God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and not about me, right? That was, that was for you, Dan. I know what you're referring to. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's this thing called communion. And the Corinthians seem to be practicing communion in a way, at least some of them, in a way that is very self-glorifying and self-exalting. So the first thing I want to notice is that it is possible for us to take religion, church, elements that God created good practices that he gave us that are good practices prayer and praise and preaching and teaching and the lord's supper and i would dare say even things like like baptism and community and fellowship it's possible to take those things and to appropriate them for self glory rather than the glory of god And I think such a tendency is an epidemic in modern-day America, at least, if not around the world. So again, we see that what Paul is writing to the church at Corinth is entirely relevant to us today. Let's begin walking through this passage, beginning in verse 17, and moving through verse by verse, like we normally do. Verse 17, But in giving this instruction, instruction about head coverings, instruction about Christian liberty and not judging others according to our own consciences, but instead judging them justly according to the word of God, according to what comes out rather than what goes in. In giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for, for the worse. Listen, church family. When God's body gathers... When the church of Christ gathers, it is for the purpose of edification. If there is no edifying going on, then we, we meet for the, for the worse and not for the better. And I think I mentioned this last week when we, when we talked about verse 17 right at, right at the end of, of the last teaching unit. But if the church is gathering for the worse and not for the better, like the Corinthians were doing, do you think we're, we're doing anything positive for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of Christ? Doubtless, Christ is using every church. Otherwise, he wouldn't let it continue, right? Even those bad, unhealthy, terrible churches who are meeting for the worse rather than for the better. But he's, he's not using them positively, he's using them negatively, right? Right? to show this is what you shouldn't become as a as a matter uh, an example for healthy local churches he's using them for the sanctification of his christian nation, right? As we see those unhealthy churches and we interact with unsound doctrine and unsound practices and we weigh those and we measure those. If, if there were never any disagreement among the churches, we would probably never have to think about anything. We would probably have not had to refine our doctrine throughout the centuries of Christianity, right? So, so God, God allows those controversies to exist. But Paul is saying here, those controversies should not exist within your church walls, there is a unity to strive for here. And when you come together, Corinthians, you come together not for the better, but for the, for the worse. Why do they come together for the, for the worse? Well, Paul explains not only do they have a, an unsound view of Christian liberty and an unsound view of head coverings for women and women prophesying and praying, but also in verse 18, we learn for or because in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that division's, Exist among you. Paul has already gotten at one type of division. Some of you follow Paul. Some of you follow Apollos. You're Apollosites. Some of you are Cephasites. You follow Peter, and some of you claim to follow Jesus. You're creating these divisions based on the the, the teachings of people or the practices of people that, that probably don't actually contradict one another. You're just forcing them to contradict, right? So that you can argue. Instead, we need to sit. At the, so that's one type of division. We learned that in chapter one. Now there's another type of division in the church at Corinth. We are learning about. He says, "In part, I believe it." In verse 19, for there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. And I want to warn us here with verse 19, because if we if we pluck verse 19 out of context, it almost sounds like Paul is encouraging. Factions in the church. Almost sounds like he's encouraging people to be divisive. Uh, let's just pluck verse 19 from its context to see what it sounds like out of context for a moment. There must be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. It almost seems like this is how God is sanctifying people in the church, right? Like God is causing division in the church so that there's disagreements within the local church, so that people are fighting one another, so, the, so that those are, who are approved by God will rise to the top. That sounds very Christian, doesn't it? That sounds exactly like something God would do, doesn't it? I, I don't think so. Look at the wording here in verse 19. Remember, it follows verse 18. And four, there at the beginning, means that Paul's explaining verse 18. Right? This is, this is an explanation of verse 18, which is an explanation of verse 17. For there must, there, it's more like, there, there must be factions among you. There, I heard about this. In part, I believe it. There must be something going on there. There must be some, some factions developing among you. So that, the reason you're creating these factions is so that those who are approved, here, probably not approved by God, but those who are approved by whatever group they're trying to be approved by in the church because there are factions, right? Those who are approved may become evident among you so that, so that they can be exalted, so that they can be seen, so that they may become evident among you. This, is, this being approved is, is negative in Paul's eyes, not positive, right? Verse 20 affirms that interpretation of verse 19. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. You would expect if verse 19 meant there are factions in the church so that some people are being sanctified and, and they're becoming evident as people who are sanctified and approved by God, you would expect verse 20 to say, therefore, when you meet together, those are the ones eating the Lord's Supper. That's not what Paul writes. Therefore, when you meet together, church at Corinth, the whole congregation... It is not to eat the Lord's Supper. There is an expectation here. Paul's assumption is that every time the church gathers, the church is observing the Lord's Supper, communion, the the Eucharist. But just because the church at Corinth says, hey, this is what we're doing, this is what we're practicing, this is how we're doing it, doesn't make it real. See, see, they're doing something that they refer to as the Lord's Supper. And probably because they believe what Paul taught them and philosophically they're confessing what Paul taught them, the traditions that Paul brought them, which were just the scriptures, right? In Corinthians so far, Paul's already said, I resolved to preach nothing but Christ and Christ crucified and I'm applying these things figuratively to myself so that you may learn not to exceed Scripture. So Paul doesn't exceed Scripture when he's giving people tradition. In fact, the tradition he's talking about is Scripture in these passages. And so they're confessing that philosophically, but then in their practice, it's not quite coming out. It's like the the cage-stage Calvinist who says, (laughs) Doctrines of Grace... All the way, doctrines of grace. But then there's no grace as he interacts with other people. That's the sort of thing Paul is getting at here. Doctrinally sound, confessionally, but then in practice, it just, there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect between, between the, the mind and the heart. And so Paul says, you think you're observing the Lord's Supper? No, when you come together, you're not actually observing the Lord's Supper. This must have been staggering for the congregants to... Here, as it was being read before them, what do you mean we're not, we're, not, we're not eating the Lord's Supper? Here we are, we have our communion plates out, we're passing, we're passing the wine, we've got the bread, we're, we're observing the Lord's Supper, and Paul just says, no, no you are not. And then he explains himself again, for or because, this is, this is why you are not eating the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. is a me first attitude. Me above all. I am going to have communion. And I am going to have a place of honor at the communion table above everyone else. I want to be evident. I want to be seen. I want to be the one who is approved. Me first. One is hungry. And another is drunk. And Paul returns to this idea that how we treat one another is important, even when it comes to observing things like the Lord's Supper. Before, Paul said some crazy things. Figuratively applying the word to himself, he says, Love is what edifies. Knowledge puffs up. And I don't want to be guilty of preaching the gospel, but then disqualify myself from partaking in the gospel. And that's a salvific statement. If we're not partaking in the gospel, it means we're not partaking in Christ and not partaking in the good news, not partaking in his, his broken body and his spilled out blood and the new covenant. And that's, that's a sentence to hell. That's a salvific issue. To be saved, we partake in the gospel. We believe and we confess Christ as Lord and we meet to exalt Him and to glorify God, not self. Like, this is a salvific issue. Like, if the Lord's Supper becomes self-glorifying then it's not actually the Lord's Supper, the implication there being, like, oh, you mean in doing this religious thing, there's no power because Christ isn't actually at the table with us because we've kicked Christ out of church in order to glorify self. That's that's a salvific issue. The glory of self and the exaltation of self. In fact, we care so much about self, fulfilling our own religion, building ourselves up to be pious, fulfilling our own desires and hungers and thirsts, to to the neglect of those in the congregation who are starving, hungry. All of a sudden our religion, by which we build ourselves up and make ourselves seem pious and important, all of a sudden that's the thing that damns us. Because we've got someone in the midst of the congregation who is actually in need and we're so busy building ourselves up that we neglect those who are actually in need. So all this talk about communion, we need to understand this. Christ desires, not for us to just stop practicing religion, right? Christ was religion. He went to synagogue. He was a Jew. He kept the law. He kept the ceremonies, okay? Kept the festivals. But Christ desires in our practice of religion that we care for others. What was it that James wrote? Do you remember? Religion that is undefiled before God is this that you that you what? Care for orphans. Visit widows in their time of need. A religion that is undefiled before God works out. We don't, we don't work to gain salvation, but salvation works out, right? This is what Paul desperately wants the Corinthians to understand as he's talking about the Lord's Supper. One is hungry, and another is drunk. <laughs> I love the next word. What? <laughs> like, what? Not even, uh, just quote Paul from a previous passage in 1 Corinthians, right? Not even... Not even the unbelievers act like that. Like even they take care of people. Not even the unbelievers act. Like, what? Do you do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Now this is interesting. And Paul has already said. Lest we think that Paul is going to contradict himself here, he's already said in line with Jesus in Matthew chapter fifteen, verse eleven. It's not what goes goes into the mouth that defiles a person. It's what comes out, which, which is damning, right? so Paul here doesn't condemn them because they're eating and, and drinking, which is what we do during communion, right? He's not condemning them for doing that. Instead, he's condemning them for using that, this good practice that the Lord gave them to neglect people, to put others down. Their knowledge has puffed them up and they're not loving others. Otherwise, they would be interested in edifying others, building others up rather than building themselves up. And that works out to every arena of life, how do we care for people? How do we care for those within the church? And in 1 Corinthians 5, we even learned how do we care for those outside the church, right? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? <laughs> through, through a rhetorical question, he <laughs> basically tells the Corinthians, look, if you're going to gorge yourselves at the church... Do that at home first before you come here so that here you can focus on others. Keep that crap out the church. Go do that at home. Stop neglecting people. Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this I will not praise you. So before we get into verse 23, and people normally start at verse 23 and expound on the Lord's Supper and what it is, but this sets the perfect context for verses 23 and following, right? Because we know something is going on in the church at Corinth, and that something has to do with people being neglected. And that's the primary focus here. And the, the Lord's Supper is the illustration Paul is using. The Lord's Supper is, uh, Chloe's people probably asked Paul about this in the letter that they sent. I think it was Chloe's people who sent the letter to Paul preceding his r- response here, 1 Corinthians, right? So they're asking him about the Lord's Supper and the practice of the Lord's Supper. And this is his reply, and, and he's using it to to teach them not to neglect others. So whatever we're about to read in verses 23 and following, see the first word in verse 23, four, because it means Paul, is, he's, he's continuing to explain. This is a continuation. It doesn't start at verse 23. Whatever Paul is about to expound on, whatever he's about to explain, has to do with people being neglected within the community of faith. People not being edified in the community of, of faith. Look at verse 23 with me. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Talking about this tradition, this teaching, right? Expository, not exceeding what is written, Christ and Christ crucified. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body again not in a transubstantive sense right he's using that language meaning that this this bread represents his body which is for you do this in remembrance of me what do you recognize about about that the purpose for which we take the the broken bread when we take the broken bread when we partake in in the bread which is symbolically broken from one loaf right who is that in remembrance of Paul's argument here is pretty good Christ said, do that in remembrance of me, and you foolish Corinthians, you're doing that in remembrance of yourselves. You're exalting yourselves, but really Christ is the one to be exalted. Even Christ taught that we're supposed to do that in remembrance of him, not ourselves. That's the argument. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In remembrance of who? That's the focus. In remembrance of whom? Christ. Not me. Christ. This, This isn't for my self-indulgence. This isn't for the sake of my Christian piety. This isn't for the sake of me being approved or me becoming evident, seen before people. This isn't for the sake of my position in a church. This isn't some legalistic routine that we, that we get wrapped up in, like we're, we're actu- like there's actually power with it every time we observe it. No, there's only power with it if Christ is there. Christ is there if Christ is the one being remembered. If the gospel is on display, right? This isn't about us. It's all about Christ. And Paul is reminding the Corinthians, have you forgotten? Here you are exalting yourself and neglecting your brothers and sisters in the faith, and you have You have asked Christ to leave the table. No wonder when we get to the book of Revelation, Christ stands at the door of the local church and knocks, right? Paul's getting at the same idea here. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That's Christ. Verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is another explanation. This is an explanation of the Lord's teaching that has come through Paul. For because as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What are you proclaiming? The Lord's death, the Lord's work, not yours. You think this is sunk in for the Corinthians at this point? I, I hope so. I'm sure some of them are getting it. Therefore Pause me. Paul's going to get us some consequences that are actually being experienced at the church at Corinth, right? Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Oh. But to be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord is what? Well, I assume it's in line with disqualifying oneself from partaking in the gospel. I assume it's in line with no longer having communion with Christ, invalidating the practice of the Lord's Supper, the practice of communion. It's the same idea Paul is getting at here. But what does it mean to eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner? It's interesting wording, right? And I've heard guys go all over the place with this. Of course, every time you're sitting in church, almost... And every time communion is served by the church elders or the pastors or the, or the deacons or some combination thereof, people often go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And sometimes it almost sounds like if there is any unrepentant sin in our lives whatsoever, we eat and drink condemnation on ourselves. Right? Now that's... That's scary. That's a burden I can't bear. Because I'm pretty confident there's sin in my life. And I haven't had a chance to repent of it because I don't know about it. It's the same struggle Martin Luther had when he was in the Augustinian order, right? Going to confession every day, these long confessions like, Oh, here's what I've done wrong, and I don't even know how to repent for the stuff that I don't even I don't even know about. It's probably still in my life that God hasn't revealed yet, and it became so burdensome to him until he stumbled across, you know, that verse in Romans one sixteen and seventeen. That would be unbearable. And I think people sometimes take this verse out of context too. What does it mean to eat and to drink? in an unworthy manner. Well, what has Paul gotten at in the context of this passage leading up to this point? The neglect of others. The exaltation of self. If you are practicing this religious act in order to glorify yourself, in order to exalt yourself, to the neglect of your brothers and sisters, to the neglect of the glory of God, to the neglect of the exaltation of Jesus Christ... you are guilty of the body and blood of Christ. And like everything else in 1 Corinthians, this is one of the evidences we receive in 1 Corinthians about of of our either genuine salvation or false conversion. I think Paul wants the believers in Corinth to know if they've been falsely converted or if their faith is genuine, right? If it has been placed in them by God, if they have the Holy Spirit, if they are actually in Christ. I think he wants them to know this. It's kind of important for us to know. So he gives... Some more evidence here, like if, if you're producing such fruit that you're participating in religion for any kind of selfish gain, you probably stand condemned before God. You're probably guilty of the body and blood of Christ. This is what it means to to eat and drink in an unworthy manner. In a way that is Filled with knowledge but not love. In a way that is puffed up and arrogant rather than edifying. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. That's a little easier to wrap my conscience around, I think. Because ultimately it's the Spirit who comes in, conforms us to the image of Christ and turns our attention outward rather than inward. Turns our attention toward building others up rather than building self up. And only the Holy Spirit can do that. If the Holy Spirit hasn't done that, then we eat and drink condemnation. or We are guilty of the body and blood of of the Lord, Jesus Christ. Which is why it's very important that if we are not in Christ or if anyone is not in Christ, has not been given the Holy Spirit, has not been given the amazing gift of, of faith that they not partake in the Lord's supper in communion, right? we get to verse twenty eight but a man must examine himself now this is interesting too because y'all I I flirt with the idea of closed communion. And I flirted with that idea off and on throughout my ministry, thinking how do the elders of the church guard the table of God? Are we not responsible for the spiritual health of our people? Are we not responsible to guard the table in such a way where where we... Say, hey, I've seen you make a profession of faith. I've, I've seen you, I baptized you. Or at least to know someone well enough to know that they're bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And to say, hey, we want to offer you this communion wine as we commune with our Lord together. And I know that it is the responsibility of the church elders, the pastors, to guard the flock, to guard the sheep, and to guard the table and to practice church discipline, which all becomes a little safer if we close communion to membership only, right? But then I stupid read passages like this. A man must examine himself. Where Paul doesn't place the responsibility for this particularly on the church elders, but on each individual, right? Such that the church elders, the pastors, should take it upon themselves to explain communion, to say, hey, this is a serious matter. I I think we do okay here so far, right? This is a serious matter. Is for those who are in Christ, is for those who live repentant lives is for those who are interested in edifying others, not glorifying themselves. But then to challenge each person to reflect, to examine himself, to weigh himself, to weigh his own motivation. At least that's what Paul says here, right? But a, a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. which makes this kind of an imperative to observe the Lord's Supper. He is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So it's not like we can just say, ah, just to be safe, I'm not going to take communion. You know, it's not even an option, because Paul says, do it, do so examining yourself. If you are in the Lord, do so examining yourself. Make sure your motivation is right, make sure your heart's straight, Make sure you're interested in edifying others, not condemning or lording your authority or spirituality or piousness over other people, and certainly not exalting your own hunger, your own lusts, your own thirsts. In examining himself, weighing himself, checking his motivation, knowing his body, having self-control, having his body in submission to him, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So it's not something we do lightly. That's why we do have a time before we observe communion to reflect and check our motivations. Verse 29, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment, some translations say condemnation there, to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Now, I have no doubt that some of this has to do with not abusing the good gifts that the Lord gives, right? Not using the Lord's Supper as an excuse for drunkenness. Not giving ourselves over to those things which God gives that are, that are, that are good. And people give themselves over to food. And people give themselves over to alcohol, having no control over their bodies. And people, they give themselves over to A whole array of things, including video games, and TV, and laziness, and workaholism. People give themselves over to immaturity, because it's just way easier to remain a child and not grow up. Right? Adulting's too hard. People give themselves over to coffee. Mm. People give themselves over to the ability to form an opinion about any array of political phenomena. People give themselves over to the controversies of this age when those controversies pale in comparison to the gospel and you'd be better off just sharing the gospel. People give themselves over, make themselves slaves to all sorts of things that are not Christ. And it is true because Paul has already made this argument, right? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. I am not judged if I partake of something good with thankfulness of heart. We're not judged by another person's conscience. He said that leading up to this point. But we are judged if we give ourselves over to those things instead of Christ. And we are not judged by another person's conscience. We are judged by God himself which is far scarier, right? Our God is a terrifying and just God. So you don't judge the body rightly. You don't judge your motivation rightly. God will come, Corinthians, and He will judge you. I don't think condemnation there is a great word. I think it should be judgment. and I think it should be judgment because of what follows. Paul says, For this reason, many among you are weak, and sick and a number of sleep. Now you could be weak and sick and die because you're constantly getting drunk, okay? That could happen. But we look on verse 31. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. So Paul actually designates this as divine judgment, like this weakness and this sickness and this sleeping, which is a euphemism for death, okay? Some have died. He actually designates that as judgment, divine judgment from God. Like, if you're just selfish, if you're just practicing religion to exalt yourself, you will be weak. And you will be sick. In fact, this is why some of you are weak and sick. And some have died. because you despised the church shamed those who had nothing remember this is about how we how we treat others that's what's in focus here and the reason i think judged is a better word to use than condemned in our translations is because of verse 32 but when you are judged when we are judged we are disciplined if you're being condemned you're not being disciplined if you're being condemned, you're just going to hell. But if we are judged and we are in Christ, is where Paul goes back to chapter 1 where he says, y'all an unhealthy church. Yeah, I got some, yeah, I got some things going on that we need to address, but I still think you're Christians. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Now there's some encouragement in the passage. Paul isn't just harp, hearken on them. He's not just getting on to him. This is not admonishing without encouragement. This is admonishing and encouragement at the same time, because that's important. Paul wants to be edifying. He wants to serve the good of the church, not just be judge, judge, judgmental. He says, so even those who are getting weak and sick and dying, if that's the judgment of the Lord and his discipline, well, that means they belong to the Lord. And God disciplines them so that they will not be condemned along with the world. What does God do with worldly people? Does he discipline worldly people who are not his? Who are not in Christ? Who do not have the Holy Spirit? Does he discipline them? Oh, no. To discipline means to disciple, means to raise up, means to edify. Discipline is edifying. Condemnation is not. It's damning. Romans chapters 1 and 2. We read that for those who are not in Christ. God is just handing them over to their depraved desires and their wretchedness. So I have to ask this question. Do we go throughout our lives only enjoying everything that we do, only being happy all the time, no matter what we do, reveling in gluttony, and drunkenness and any array of things we can hand ourselves over to without being chastised by the Holy Spirit. Because if we are never chastised by the Holy Spirit, God has not claimed us for his kingdom. He's handed us over to our depraved desires. That should concern us. But if we are being disciplined by God, chastised by the Spirit even experiencing maybe some physical ailments, some sicknesses, some weakness, right? And even even death for the people of God sometimes, for the people of God, we might rebel against God to the degree where God might just say, okay, you're not doing any good there. But and it's disciplined for us, and it's sanctifying for us when we meet Jesus, right? It seems to be what's going on here for some. But if we experience the chastising of the Holy Spirit, that should be encouraging to us, because it means we... It means we are in Christ. It means God cares about our sanctification. In verses 33 and 34, Paul makes his application, his call to action, his invitation. Should we play music and have an invitation this morning? <laughs> Paul says, So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat... The Lord's Supper, right? That's inferred. When you come together to eat, wait for one another. Oh, well, Paul, I thought you were going to get crazy with that. I thought you were going to get real complicated. That is a complicated religion. But notice, he. He doesn't restrict the Corinthians from eating or drinking. If anybody should have been restricted from drinking, it would have been the Corinthians, right? If anybody would have been restricted from eating during during the service, it would have been the Corinthians. Because they were abusing it. But Paul doesn't restrict them. Instead, he says when you come together to eat, just wait for one another. Just care about one another. That's his application. Make sure nobody's being neglected. There shouldn't be one hungry and another drunk. Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, talking about those particularly who are being gluttons, right? Using the Lord's Supper as an excuse for gluttony. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. And here he says it explicitly. The rhetorical question earlier wasn't good enough. He's got to say it explicitly. Do that at home. Eat at home. So that you will not come together for Judgment, so that you will not be tempted to jump in front of others in line, to belittle others, so that you can get your fill, so that you can satisfy you yourself, so that you can actually think about edifying others, right? So that you will not come together for judgment. And he says the remaining matters. apparently there's a lot more Paul has to say about communion. And this isn't all matters, because we still have five chapters left in which Paul addresses other matters. <laughs> But concerning communion in this arena, Paul says the remaining matters I will arrange when I come. When I get there, we're going to talk about more than this, but you need to know this now. I wish I had a recording of that following conversation. My brothers and sisters, when we come together, I hope it is for the purpose of eating the Lord's Supper not just practicing religion, not belittling others, but loving others, both within and without the proverbial walls of the church. Let us be interested in godly religion, not religion that is self-seeking, not religion that is puffed up, arrogant, filled with only knowledge without love. Let us be interested in edifying everyone everyone who comes to join us. Because if Christ calls someone and he is the one to be exalted, who are we to keep anyone? Any child, anyone who wears different clothes or smells a little different, who are we to keep anyone? Anyone who has tattoos or has a bad habit that we don't like, who are we to keep anyone from the Lord's table? if Christ has them, and if their motivation is right. We are no one. This is not about exalting us. It's about exalting Christ. We are Christ the Father.